Our guest this week is Matthew McAllister, who is founder of MortgagePropeller.com. This is a startup online platform that links people seeking mortgages with mortgage brokers. Matthew's background was as a trader, which he got into after seeing the film Trading Places. Matthew talks about how he developed resilience to survive in that industry. When he was doing a Smurf and MBA, he went to see the NDRC Accelerator program and he wasn't really sure what it was all about, but he did get bitten by the startup bug. He also tells a great story about buying his house on a credit card, which really set him on the road to start Mortgage Propeller. I think you'll find Matthew's really interesting and engaging guest, and he plays that with a great song. This podcast is sponsored by Netzer, Digital First Selling. During these times of COVID and falling telco sales, Digital First Selling is the answer to new customer acquisition, increasing revenues and cost reduction. If you are a telco, an MVNO or an eSIM provider, we have the ideal Digital First Selling as a Service solution for you. The Netzer Digital First Selling Solution enables you to sell and onboard remotely. It will integrate with your BSS and OSS systems and with Salesforce, and we meet all regulatory requirements. Contact pat.flynn at netzer.com so that we can understand your issues and provide you with the best solution. Okay, welcome to the podcast this week. And we have a great guest with Matthew McAllister. And Matthew's got a great background, which he'll explain in a second. Initially, he was a, a trader. Maybe, I don't know if Dal Boy would be your hero, uh, Matthew, but we'll take, you can explain in a second. And he has now got into the startup world with a really interesting startup. So first of all, Matthew, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, great to be here. No, 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 brilliant to have you on. Yeah, so we were just talking there. So you were... You were saying that for a lot of your career, you were a trader, but we were talking about trading commodities and other things, I guess. Maybe just talk a little bit about that. I think it's quite interesting. Yeah. So as I mentioned, I, I seen this on uh, trading places when I was a kid and, and uh, that really fascinated me. And, you know, I was good at maths and I just decided that's what I was going to do. I didn't really know what it was, but as I got closer and finished university, that's that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be that guy with a stripy jacket shouting. So whenever I would have seen <laughs> uh, shows like um, Rogue Trader with Nick Leeson and stuff, I, that would I, that would have been the show I would have went to. But when I came out of university, that's not like that. That's not what that world is. That doesn't really exist. It's all online. The exchanges went online, and you look at maybe a bank of four to six screens that have access to the, the Chicago Board of Trade, Chicago Mercantile Exchange, Life in London, Eurex across Europe. And, and so it very, very different. It became, instead of a very boisterous, you know, what's the word, uh, wide boy sort of impression, it's a nerdy sort of place with a lot of analytics, a lot of um, innovation and analysis of your performance and your activity. And, and as I said, for what, 12, 13 years that I did it, 60% of all the trades and decisions I made were losing trades. Um, but, you know, and that's a perfect sort of foundation for startups because you're making decisions all the time and you're being told you're wrong. So you have mm-hmm. to, I suppose, pivot is not the right word, but you have to go accept the loss quickly and move on. And you would have done that hundreds of times in a day. So, you know, that's I was pretty... That's a very interesting analogy, Matthew. I mean, it must be tough to maintain the mental st- um, stamina to look at your portfolio, maybe 
less than when you started the day and you had some bad trades. I mean, what is it self-belief or is it a process? What keeps keeps you focused and going? Um, well, not ending up in the poor house is a, is a good motivation. But what keeps <laughs> you going is that you, you never you didn't get a salary. You didn't get any money. You, you only your success was based on your performance. So what you did find is if somebody lasted the first couple of years, like most people feel, think of the failure rate in trading is about 95%. But if you lasted a couple of years and you hung in there, so you need to have a lot of resilience. You know, there's here, don't get me wrong, there's days you're down and there's days there you're, you don't want to look at your stats to see how your performance was. And you don't want to write in your diary at night to review your day's activity. And usually you would have had a mentor who would review, we call it reviewing your sheets. And when you were down, you always had a, like a great group of people who were going through the same. I think probably that's a, that's something that happens in the startup community. Somebody has experienced it before. So like I would have talked to a guy who maybe 15 years experience when I was like, I'm, I'm getting out of this game. You know, uh, clearly I'm, I maybe haven't had a paycheck in five months. And he was like, you've just got a trading scar. It'll do you the world of good. And I was like, I remember saying to him, have you had trading scars? And he says, sure, look at me back. It's covered in them. And, <laughs> and he would tell a story. He said, take the next day off, do some exercise. And set up another plan for the next six weeks and just get back to basics. And there was an awful lot of that over the space of 12 years and 13 mm-hmm. years. And, and that's why you're able to stay in it. And, and the motivation is that you really enjoyed it. When you didn't enjoy it, when you didn't enjoy the challenge, that's the beginning of the end. And I used to say it to some of the traders that I kind of, you know, I would have mentored and, and invested in a lot of traders. You can tell when they're coming to the end of their career because they're sort of like punch drunk. They're mm-hmm. not. They're not coming in at six o'clock in the morning anymore the way they used to. They're coming in at half eight, and mm-hmm. they're leaving earlier, and they're not spending an hour at the sheets, and they're not talking and doing the research. And that's the beginning of an end for a trader because there's always some young, hungry trader coming in who's working harder, who's now smarter, who's doing analytics mm-hmm. and big, and you get pushed out just like any other market, you know. So, and what's what sort of uh, was it? All commodities or what? What did you trade? So I started a stock index futures. So you might see the FTSE closed up. Six, six points, 50 points, whatever it is. That's really the the, the, the stocks, the, 50, the 100 stocks in the FTSE. So there's indexes all across the world in every country. S&P 500, NASDAQ, FTSE 100. Uh, my, my bread and butter at the start for the early part of my career was the Eurostoxx 50, the DAX 30, which is Germany and France. Um, but as you get on, you have to innovate and change because they become more efficient and you find you're not making money and performing there. And, and we talked about frozen concentrated orange juice came online. And when a market comes online, it's usually very illiquid. It's very risky. And you, you dip your toe in it and you try and study it. You learn the fundamentals of that, just like just like any startup would. And there's probably a person in the frozen concentrated orange juice who is living in Florida, has been trading for 15 years. And then you step into it from a different perspective, maybe some tools you've designed and developed to, to do you know, like algorithms to do stuff in the frozen concentrated orange and maybe you find it works. So, you know, you start doubling down and maybe allocating 10% of your time on that commodity or on cotton to try and sort of give you a portfolio to go to on different revenue streams. And you're always changing. It's very rare that somebody just stayed in one um, particular market for 15, 20 years. It always changes. Energy came online everybody started to move into that. It's, it's a constantly evolving. And if you didn't and you stayed too long and you didn't innovate and evolve, you were probably put out of business. So do you want to talk a little bit about how did you get into the startup world? I mean, is, is it sort of in your blood that, that, you know, need to start something new, make it big, you know, drive it forward? Yeah. 
I'm sure it is in me. You know, I was always the person at school who was running the bus to the football matches to make something on the side or organizing <laughs> tournaments. But I was never, I never really, I don't, I, looking back, I don't feel like, a, you know, I have accomplished anything to the level that I believe I should because I didn't know that there was this thing as VCs and this startup worlds and a very random event led it to happen, which was I went to an MBA at Smurfit. And the reason for that was that I was becoming that punch drunk trader. I didn't love it anymore and I needed to make a change and wife and kids are on the way. So I went and did an executive MBA on the side while still trading. And on one of the days they invited us into the NDRC, the digital hub for the accelerators. Mm-hmm. I walked I walked in that day. This was to do work on strategy with startups. And I, I, I signed up for everything when I was in the MBA because I was trying to, I knew I was going to make a change somewhere. And um I didn't know what this was. I literally didn't know what an accelerator was. And we walked in here and I was like, what is this place? And people explained it to me. And a guy that I used to trade with was in there. I said, what are you doing here? And he's like, I'm on this accelerator. And like, I was kind of laughing at him because it's hard to take this man serious. It's like he was a trader, a really, really big, successful trader. And he had just founded a company called Assure Hedge. And he was on Accelerator. And Assure Hedge is a fintech startup based in Dublin that uh, helps people hedge their um, FX issues and he would have been trading FX options and he's seen the problem and he went on the accelerator and they're very successful now they've had two or three raises they're authorized in the FCA and I ended up following that meeting I joined them a couple of months later right at the start of a sure hedge and that's where I started to enter the startup world. Okay that's that's really interesting so you you saw the light so to speak Hopefully, like the rest of us, not an oncoming train in, in the tunnel, but, you know, it, it is quite an exciting world. And, you know, you you can make your own destiny because pretty well everything is up to you or your partners in the project. Do, do, you, want, do you want to talk a little bit about your company? What is the service it provides? So before talking about mortgage propeller, I probably should say how, how I entered into it, which was after the crash in 2010, the credit crunch. I just watched house prices collapse. I didn't know anything about property. And I just couldn't understand, particularly in Northern Ireland, what was really, really badly hit. One of the fastest drops in history when I researched it. And a house price can't go to zero. I just couldn't understand this. And I, w- I was very short of money at the time. And I-, I seen that a house price online, our house was going online for very little. And I was like, this has to be worth something. And I didn't have the money at the time. So I ended up buying that house with a credit card. That was in wow. 2010. That's what set me off. I bought the house with a credit card. And the thought was, right, I'll go and get a mortgage here. Didn't know anything about mortgages and I'll pay off this credit card. But that's not how it happens. Okay. Um, I got a very, very scary lesson. It took me nearly two years to get that mortgage to pay that credit card off. And when the uh, when the interest kicked in, I was facing close to ruin. But it took me two years. I'd say I spoke to 10 mortgage brokers, um, five banks. I learned everything there was about trying to get around. Finally, uh, I wouldn't say manipulated the system, but I finally got things in order where I could get a mortgage. And I paid off the credit card and I could breathe again. And, you know, I was right about the value of houses. I felt they were extremely undervalued. So for them, fast forward eight or nine years, my wife and I go for a mortgage and it's it's the same process I went through eight or nine years ago. I'm visiting uh, mortgage brokers. I'm creating paperwork. I'm visiting lenders. They're asking for attachments. I'm chasing them for weeks. I was like, oh, how can this be? And I've just been in the startup world for a couple of years. And meanwhile, they're self-driving cars. Yet I'm still doing phone tennis, email tennis, days off work to go and visit brokers to try and get it over the line. And out of, we got that mortgage. But out of curiosity, I just started to look to see there has to be a better way. Is there no online mortgages in this day and age? And that's what took me to see a company in America called Rocket Mortgage. 
which is basically the world leaders in this sort of space. And I was like, this is the way the industry's going. There's no more paperwork going to happen here. I had obviously been with Assure Hedge. I'd understood that open banking was coming in. PSD2 would making changes. Also, everybody's on mobiles, digital banks with regards to banking as a platform like Revolut. I was like, this is going to change. So I started researching more and, and, and thinking maybe this is the way it's going to go. And, and ultimately, that's led to um, us starting Mortgage Repeller. Okay, brilliant. So mortgage propeller. So so mortgage propeller. So what is the experience of the customer? What, why would they come to you and what do they get that they wouldn't get from going to a, a normal broker? Well, at the moment in the pandemic, they probably won't be able to get to that broker. Um, but really... <laughs> When you, when you get digging into first principles, when you really get down to the bones, and I didn't understand this at the start, why are people not doing it online? It really comes back to compliance. And so a borrower now, they want their hand held through the process. They want the support and expertise, particularly if they're a first-time buyer. They, they, you know, when you look at the research, they don't really know the ins and outs. So they do need a, a, a broker there to help them. But we, our customer is really the broker. What the broker needs is help with compliance. That is why there is a problem when you dig way back. And in the UK, the industry changed in the 80s when banks merged with building societies and they dominated the market lending uh, for mortgages. But there's also great risk to um, selling a mortgage. And also because there were so many new products, because regulation eased and the complexity increased, it became very expensive to train their staff in-house. So they outsourced to brokers. And then brokers went and joined networks. And what networks are is one firm that has an appointed representative underneath it. So sort of like an umbrella firm. Mm -hmm. Now the networks had that risk that risk of mis-selling where it's very onerous and very painful from uh, the FCA's retribution if you mis-sell and there's been people sanctioned and struck off and extreme fines. So to help them deal with the compliance and the risk, they had people enter manually the fact find, which is that paper application, when we first had first contact, uploading documents, all these manual processes. This was 15, 20, 25 years ago, and the same legacy systems are in place today. And that's what slows down the mortgage application process from the borrower's perspective. But if you were starting from scratch, if you were thinking about APIs and open banking and you just started now building you know, the perfect solution, you can take a lot of that compliance issue away and automate it for the broker, which gives them the chance to um, speed up the process, um, be compliant and give a better service to borrowers. So why would the borrower come to our platform which is, you know, servicing a lot of brokers, is that they want uh, the personal touch, which is what we enable with automated updates. There's no more email tennis, no more chasing up. Mm-hmm. And they want the, the um, speed and they want the access to thousands of products. So when you have hundreds of brokers on your platform and they've got panels of 10, 15,000 products, they're going to get the same service um, as they would if they just went in um, to a broker's office the way it used to be done. And then when we take it to the next level with the likes of open banking, they don't have to gather up all their paper documents. They don't have to go and get their credit files. They don't have to print and scan and all that sort of stuff. And then the broker doesn't have to worry about did they give the right advice or did they communicate it in the right way? Cause there'd be a track record of their communication. So there's sort of pristine compliance. God forbid mm-hmm. the FCA does 
call for them. So they've got peace of mind and speed, which allows them to be more efficient and give a better service. And, and that should allow them to scale because the, the, you know, when I do my pitch to investors, what I say is that nine out of 10 mortgage firms have five advisors or less. They can't mm -hmm. scale. And that, that's a fact. It's an FCA um, um, it's evident by the FCA's research. And another thing that adds into that is that they struggle to generate leads. They struggle to get out there. And that's because it's bricks and mortar. So they, they de determined, like in Cookstown, whoever the, the local broker is, he probably only works in a 10-mile radius. Mm -hmm. um, so like somebody in... in Bournemouth should be able to do a mortgage for somebody in Manchester if he's good enough. And that's ultimately where we're going towards, which is to um, open up the entire UK market with the online presence okay. that they have, as opposed to just bricks and mortar working in local referrals. Okay, that's brilliant. I, I can totally see it. And you're placing yourself as a middleman that brings extra value to both parties. So there's a pretty strong business case there i guess you get a clip of the mortgage fee or something like that is that there is that your business model so currently what we want to do well currently actually there is no we're just giving it out so okay. we have advisors using it and you know they're having a they're having a really successful year believe it or not in all of this because there was a stamp duty holiday and it's like a bonanza for them so they're currently making hay with the sun shines and when we're giving them this platform you see a little bit of friction they're going oh i'm too time too busy to do this here and we're like well look we have going to have uh, um, leads coming through we'll just give them for free let's get the feedback from you and try and achieve product market fit sure. and ultimately where we'd like to get to is a subscription model mm -hmm. and in the long term would be to if this continues to build and people like our platform we'd probably look to go and get authorized ourselves mm -hmm. so that if we've got a better service than another network why don't they come under our wings um, and under our umbrella? And at that case, that's when you get a, a revenue percentage of and a membership fee of your members on the network. But right now it's free and we're giving it to brokers. Um, borrowers are free to go on to use it. If the broker charges the borrower a fee, it's all done through the platform. But there's no benefit to us right now. We're just trying to get users on the platform. We're very early and let's get some feedback. And when we get a little bit more traction, what we'll do is we'll start using a monthly fee or okay. else for those that won't use it enough, you know, there's some lifestyle uh, brokers that don't have a lot of activity, maybe only do a mortgage or two a month. And mm -hmm. it wouldn't be in their interest to have such a commitment. What we'll probably do is take a, a, um, a small cut of the payments that are made through the platform. Okay, no, so flexible payments for the for the brokers. Okay, look, that's brilliant, Matthew, and a really exciting opportunity, particularly now with the COVID and the move to digital. So, how do how do people contact you? What's the platform? It's mortgagechapeller.com. So the easiest way for a borrower to do, and you'll see a lot of us making making our presence felt on social media and the likes of that. If they were trying to, if they're looking for a house or they're thinking about a mortgage, go onto the platform, and what happens is that they put in their initial details and we connect them. So if it was someone in Scotland, we've got brokers in Scotland. If it's someone in England, we've someone in England. And if it's in Northern Ireland, there'll be a broker there. So they get connected to the most sortable broker uh, and then they can do all this online. And if it's right, the mortgage broker will take them through to, to get the mortgage that they need. Okay, that's brilliant. Thanks very much for being on the podcast. As On this podcast, the guest gets to nominate the, the outro song. So I'm interested to hear what you, you're thinking of. Um, the weight by the band. Do you know oh it? man! Oh man! You, you and I are sort of like brothers. <laughs> We're brothers here. What a song! 
Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll give you the background that there. When uh, my wife and I were on our, our honeymoon, we were in the west coast of America and we were driving down, uh, I think it's Pacific Coast Highway. And it was nighttime. We've done a lot of driving. We did a road trip for our honeymoon and we had like an open top Jeep and all that sort of stuff, you know, thinking you're the, the surf kids. But uh, <laughs> at that, on a Friday and a Saturday night, all the beaches running down there, all the surfers, they start having bonfires after they're surfing and the smell comes up and lands in. And at that time, that was playing on the radio. The sun's going down. I remember we didn't speak for about four minutes. Uh, and when it was done, it was just like a moment you're going, what are, what are we doing ourselves? <laughs> running about being busy and, uh, and, and, and killing yourself and working yourself to the bone. And you're just looking at those guys. You're just so jealous. And you're like, that's kind of what, that's the reason for all of this. You know, it's the reason why you chase it. It's the reason that you don't want the pain that going for your mortgage maybe give some people that sort of feeling maybe if this all goes well we'll get some of that feeling too okay brilliant no th thanks for being a great guest i really appreciate it and um I'm, i know i'm going to enjoy this song <laughs> no worries cheers right, man. thanks for that
Get yeah. 